You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. For nearly 30 years, there's been a story that's captured the hearts and imaginations of people all over the globe. The story began on the big screen, and I can still vividly remember being a five-year-old taken into the movie theater, sitting next to my mama, watching this story. It became the highest-grossing animated film for a long, long time, and still is among the top. It was eventually spun off into one of the most successful Broadway productions, also of all time. Even back in 2017, the Broadway production had been seen by over 90 million people with 24 productions that had grossed $8 billion. Even if you look at the country of South Africa alone, there have been 263 South Africans, many many of them without any formal training in theater, have been enlisted to go all over the planet for productions in Dutch, English, French, German, Japanese, Korean, Mandarin, Portuguese, and Spanish. It's cast and its performances have been global, all testifying to the spellbinding power of a great resonant story known as The Lion King. All right, somebody. The Lion King tells the story of a beautiful kingdom of all creation set in the pride lands of South Africa. And at the beginning of the story, all is under the responsible rule of a king, Mufasa. There is a beautiful picture of harmony between giraffe and antelope between rhino and and hippo and toucan and everything under the loving and responsible rule of a good king. Tragedy strikes in the story when the king's brother, Scar, murders his brother and usurps the kingdom's throne, bringing a reign of cruelty, selfishness, disharmony, famine, grief, oppression, all while exiling the son of the king and heir to the throne, Simba. Spoiler alert. Things are not set to right until the son of the king, Simba, returns to banish the usurper of the throne and bring a renewed kingdom back to the pride lands. With the help of many unlikely characters, misfits we might call them, warthogs, meerkats, baboons, all enlisted to be a part of the redemptive project to renew the land and the kingdom and banish the forces of darkness that had so long reigned. Doesn't it sound like a beautiful story? The story, of course, is not all that original. It takes inspiration from things like Hamlet or biblical stories like that of Joseph and Moses, outcasts who return to be rescuers of God's people. Stories like The Lion King are ubiquitous in every culture because that narrative arc resonates within the human heart. And if it didn't, it wouldn't sell. Beyond the intellect, beyond the cynicism of those who don't like the sentimentalization of fairy tales, something about the Lion King and stories like it unlock something in our hearts even before our cognition, unlock something like a childlike spirit of wonder, an original beautiful kingdom, a rebellion and reign of terror, and a rescue and a healing and a renewal of what had been lost. The Psalms as the songbook of the people of God for thousands of years, explore a narrative arc like this. Because the Psalms rejoice over the harmony of the earth as God's kingdom, everything under the rule of a creator Lord. The Psalm also have laments over the way the earth and those within it have fallen into horrible misery and have succumbed to reign of terrors and famines and oppression and grief. 
But also the Psalms celebrate a promise and a celebration of a king who returns to rescue and redeem his people, to heal the land, meet the need, set the captives free. I think you could say that kingdom is the predominant thread that weaves in and out of every single writer of the 66 books of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, writers of different cultures and over thousands of years. It is the image that captivates the storytellers of the Christian faith, that captivates the worship of the church. We just said it in the creed, and his kingdom will have no end. The Lord as king and the earth of his kingdom and the story of redemption. Last week, Pastor Russ brilliantly explored Psalm 8 by digging into questions of anthropology, you could say. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? The burning questions of Psalm 8 being, what is humanity? What is a human being? He went on to say that a human being is a creature made in the royal image of God, bestowed with dignity, crowned with glory and honor. Well, if the burning question of Psalm 8 was, what is man? I think the burning question of Psalm 47 is, what is the world? How are we to make sense of human experience in this world that we physically inhabit? How do we understand the past and the trajectory of the future? Not small questions. I believe that Psalm 47 presents an answer. And I believe that the story that Psalm 47 tells is part of the greatest story ever told that has captivated audience across thousands of years and the globe. I want to say that the answer comes in Psalm 47 in three movements. There is the kingdom, there is the usurped kingdom, and then there is the restored kingdom. Sound familiar? First is the kingdom. Psalm 47 is a song of enthronement. It's a song that celebrates God's kingship. There are many in the Psalms, and if you're going to understand, if you want to understand the book of Psalms, you need to understand this theme of king and kingdom. It's a song celebrating that there is a reality that is the ultimate reality behind everything we could see. There is a creator who is a king, and the earth is his kingdom. It is an enchanted way of viewing the world. And when I use the language of enchantment, I'm bringing in a word that still means something to modern folk in an increasingly post-religious, post-Christian, secular world. And it gets us into the realm of the word magic. And when we say magic, we're simply trying to say that there's something supernatural. There are unseen realities amidst the natural lived realities. There's more to the, than the material world because I was made for more than the material world. Just this week, I was sitting with a friend uh, who I would say is, falls into this category of spiritual and not religious. He's got a lot of spiritual reality, but you won't find him attending a church. And I was, it's a long story, but I was rocking a baby and singing to a baby. And he said to me, you know, I think when we sing to babies, it puts them in touch with deep magic. He said, you might call that God or whatever, uh, but I call it deep magic. And I don't know if the Psalms are about deep magic, but I do know they're about divine magic. Because in the Psalm, it is in beginning to instruct the worshipers to assume a, a posture of body and heart that befits those who recognize I'm a creature in a glorious world. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with what? Loud songs of joy. Somebody said one time, if you want to figure out the theology of the worship of the Bible, it's one word, loud. <laughs> so if you ever feel like worshiping Grace Mosaic is just too loud, just know we're just trying to be biblical, right? Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. 
Why does the psalm want you to, to pour out this kind of song of wonder and gratitude? Well, it gives the answer in verses 2 and 7 and 9 and all these statements that begin with 4. And they're all essentially saying the same thing. Because there is ultimately one king over reality, a most high, a highly exalted, one who is to be feared or revered. And when the Bible talks about this concept of the fear of the Lord, I like to think that it's kind of like encountering a huge cliff in a glorious mountain scene. You look over a huge cliff and you're, you're amazed with awe at the beauty of what you see, the scale of what you see, but you proceed with caution because you know you are not the master of the mountain. <laughs> you know you cannot scale the depths and the heights of the mountain scene before you, so you fear something beautiful. Or maybe it's like a roaring fire. I can look at it. It's awesome. I can feel the heat of it, but I don't touch it. I proceed with caution. And that's the sense of awesomeness that the scripture talks about that all of the earth proclaims about its maker. It's a sense, it's a sense that the scenes of nature before us say to us, look at me. You think I'm awesome? Think about the one who made me. That's what nature is doing. We are confronted with the way that the Psalms view the earth. The earth is not mere material that accidentally became what it was through happenstance or mere chaotic chemical reactions or mere evolutionary equations. It is a world created with intentionality, infused with the glory of its maker, made with power and love. And so the stuff of the earth within all of the Psalms the stuff of the earth itself brings glory to the maker. The things of the earth like trees and, and hills and all the animals, they are instructed to praise the Lord just like human beings are. Most famously is Psalm 148 that you can see. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, praise the Lord. It's a vision of the earth as a unified kingdom of praise and joy and thanksgiving, all pointing to the rule of a king. But for Israel, the singers of this psalm, we always have to remember that Israel sang the psalms first. There were layers to this idea of kingship because they knew from the very first page of their scriptures that there was a king of creation that ruled just by the word of his power. But that king had created them, as we explored last week, with royal dignity and dominion to exercise a loving authority over the things of creation. But they were to see themselves as under kings and under queens under a great king. And the great king, as we saw last week, had in his royal grace crowned them with glory and honor as royalty, as image bearers, to have dominion in the earth that they lived. This kind of dominion is like the kind of dominion where children can flourish under responsible, loving parents. Like the way that tomato vines or grapevines can flourish and multiply under a responsible, loving gardener. That's the kind of dominion that the Creator made men and women and boys and girls to exercise in the good world. And this to me is an important apologetic point because I've read two big works uh, one fiction, one nonfiction, even within the past month. One is called Soil, the Story of a Black Mother's Garden by Camille Dungy, the nationally revered poet and also the Pulitzer Prize-winning overstory. Both are about nature in many ways, but both trumpet this idea that the biblical Christian faith is a faith where nature is dominated 
It devalues the value of uh, physical things in favor of spiritual things so that one day we can enjoy a spiritual heaven where everything burns on the earth. That's what they think the Christian faith teaches about the earth. And that's why many people have found the Christian faith dissatisfying. But I'm here to tell you that the Christian faith does not view the earth that way. The, the Christian faith views the earth as God's beautiful kingdom of immeasurable value. Everybody, everything within the earth that is to be ruled with a responsible and loving authority. Dominion says that each of us in our own ways have our own little kingdoms. Dallas Willard once said that your kingdom is the range of your effective will. And what he meant is your kingdom is the place where you can make stuff happen where you can organize things, where you can exert your kind of authority. And this, this happens right from the get-go in our life. What is one of the first words that a two- or three-year-old learns to say? Mine. Mine. My five-year-old just graduated kindergarten, and he got a graduation gift box as part of it that he had decorated. And let me tell you, that's his, that's his kingdom. He puts in that box all of his special little trinkets, and he said, that's my graduation box. That's his kingdom. Because he's bearing God's image. Because that's how God created human beings to be. Yes, it can be selfish. We know that. <laughs> but humans still bear this divine image and this urge towards the awe and the responsibility when we see the world. And ultimately today, we might expect that with the rise of secularism and post-Christianity, at least in our part of the world, that this enchanted view of nature might just disappear. But I find it quite common to encounter people these days who are not part of formal churches or religion, but nevertheless find deep spiritual or supernatural meaning through their interactions with the earth, through nature, through plants. And so the same space that used to be filled in their parents' or grandparents' lives by church attendance and the story of the Christian faith, among young modern people, they have, found, they have sought to find spiritual sensation elsewhere. I can't help but notice the rise of healing crystals, astrology, tarot cards that are becoming more and more popular. Why? And I'm not, this isn't just a, a hobby horse. They literally are becoming more popular because they give people a sense of deep magic. I also think that modern people use sexuality as a way to bridge between the material and the spiritual or the magical. And that's because modern people are longing for something. The English writer Julian Barnes once said that modern people are like, say statements like this, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. That describes the state of many modern people. And so we thought that taking religious dogma from life would create people who are cool, calm, educated, collected, ready for life, and in an affluent Western world where all the confidence we can have is in the mere material nature of life. But no, because that story doesn't resonate with the human heart because human beings were made for something more. And so our modern stories leave us wanting for more. It has left people to fill this void left by the lack of a transcendent story. And Psalm 47 is a picture of a different understanding of the earth. It's God's kingdom. That's the first part of the answer that the Psalm provides, but there's more to the story than that. There is a usurped kingdom. If kingdom is on the first page of the Bible, then a usurped kingdom appears on the second or the third. <laughs> because at the tempting power of the original usurper to the throne, Satan himself, humans rebel against their status as lower kings and lower queens and try to claim the throne for themselves. 
human power then becomes not a calling of responsible leadership to bring glory to the king. Human power now becomes a way to absorb glory for myself, a man or a woman or a nation or a group, until we might just appear to be the ones ultimately ruling reality. Self-promotion. Now I'm not crowned with glory and honor. I crown myself with glory and honor. Israel, the ones singing this psalm, they had encountered different kinds of kings and different kinds of kingdoms, hadn't they? I'm chiefly remembering Egypt. Because in the story of the scripture, Egypt becomes a prototype, a symbol of what kingdoms look like when they rebel against the responsible rule of the king. Because in Egypt, instead of responsible dominion, it's selfish, violent domination. Instead of ensuring the flourishing of people under your care, it's ensuring your profit or pleasure at the expense of people under your authority. That's how the kingdoms of this wor uh, world work. Instead of, of reflecting glory and taking it back to the maker, it's absorbing glory. But you see, in the Exodus, the Lord of Israel had showed the kingdoms of this earth that he was at war with them and showed them who actually has the power. And so when God subdues Pharaoh, he shows that he's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. So God's rule is broadcasted not only in the glory of creation, but in the glory of his redemptive acts. And that's what the psalm celebrates. He subdued people under us. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves. The psalm speaks to the special privileged place that the people of Israel enjoyed from God, from the Lord, from Yahweh. Not because they were a better people. Not because they were a bigger nation, not at all. Simply because God, the king, set his love on them in a particular way. You could say that Israel, compared to its neighbors, was a kingdom of misfits called together to be a different kind of kingdom altogether. From Abraham onwards, Israel was supposed to be a channel of blessing and renewal for all of the people and all of the nations. And that'll, that's what we'll get to in Psalm 47. Abraham's in here. Y'all just get ready. And that kingdom was, again, supposed to be a different kind of kingdom, a beautiful kind of worship and dominion. That's why the laws of Israel had protections for the vulnerable. That's why Israel had laws about forgiveness and sacrifice and mercy for people in need of it. That's why Israel had laws about the flourishing of plants and animals. Because life in Israel was supposed to look like, what if life was like when the king was on the throne, the creator was on the throne? And eventually, when Israel did have kings like David, their kings were to see themselves as lower kings under the submission of the king, right? The laws that they were supposed to study were not their own laws. It was the laws of the true king. The words, not their own words, but Yahweh's words. And Israel sometimes was that picture, but because they themselves were broken people led by broken men and women, they ultimately continued to usurp the throne imitating the nations around them in idolatry and rebellion. And the result of the reign and that rule is kind of like Scar's rule. Cruelty, selfishness, disharmony, famine, and grief upon the kingdom. That's the story of human history. We keep expecting different results. If only we can organize our kingdom with the right amount of education, with the right amount of money or therapy or weaponry or ideology or inclusivity, then we can realize finally the kind of kingdom we're after. Newsflash, I haven't seen that approach work yet. Even in the modern, affluent, sophisticated West, we are imploding with anxiety, with alienation, with technologi technologically fueled polarization. 
And the fabric of our society even seems to be tearing away at the threads. This whole experiment called even the American democracy. And we are all still living in, an, in a world where death can strike at any instant and squash our dreams of eternal comfort and pleasure. We keep running from the reality that is so true. In our modern life, in our post-Christian West, with all of its kingdoms, whether nations or rulers or political movements, or our modern kingdoms of the self, again, leave us wanting for more. And if you don't feel it now, you will. The fragility of the kingdoms of the earth always come to bear. That's the second part of the story, the usurped kingdom, but it's not the last movement of Psalm 47. The Christian faith tells bad news before it tells good news because it tells how things actually are. And just like in The Lion King, Psalm 47 takes us to a movement towards a restored kingdom. So lastly, the restored kingdom. See, the Old Testament lives in a tension around this whole idea of kings and kingdoms. Yes, there are human kings and kingdoms, and Israel has them. Still, there's this promise that runs through the Old Testament that there's the, the throne of the King David that would be established forever and would exercise a kind of rule over all the nations that would be truly good for the earth. So the Old Testament sets you up with a longing for that throne and that rule to be fulfilled. But also, the story of the Old Testament leaves you wanting something else, which is the visitation of God himself. See, in another one of these kingship enthronement psalms, Psalm 96, here's what the psalm says. It says, The Lord reigns, the earth is established, it shall not be moved. He will judge peoples with equity. Let the field exult everything in it. Then shall all the trees in the forest sing for joy. Why? Before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and people in faithfulness. See, in the, the Old Testament and all of the Bible, there is an acknowledgement of the brokenness of human kingdoms and the need for a restored kingdom to come, for God himself to visit and bring about a different kind of kingship to the earth, to judge the earth, to set everything right, to reverse the curse. So there's a kingdom in the Old Testament, but you're waiting for a kingdom to come. You're left waiting for a king to come. And that's why when you turn to the pages of the New Testament, it's very curious, even on the very first page of the New Testament in your Bible at the Gospel of Matthew, the very first two sentences are about a lineage of someone from the line of David, from the line of Abraham. It has the feel of a royal lineage an announcement of a birth of a king. And that's why when Jesus arrives on the scene, what are the first words out of Jesus' mouth? It is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. In effect, when Jesus hits the scene, he says, stop what you are doing. Change the way you look at things here and now, because the kingdom of God has arrived among you. There is a life offered like has never been offered before. And when Jesus said kingdom of heaven, he wasn't talking about a place you go when you die most principally. Heaven in the Bible is the place where God rules. It's the realm of God's authority, his presence, his rule, and his reign. So when Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God is here, he is saying the great king has arrived. 
authority has come down. This is a divine invasion. And now when people thought about the invasion of a kingdom in Jesus' day, they expected it to work like the way kingdoms work, where a king comes in and subjugates and dominates others to get them under his authority. Even those educated, most educated in the Old Testament at Jesus' time couldn't understand the character and kind of kingdom that Jesus brought. You could say the kind of Jesus, kingdom that Jesus brought was a band of misfits enlisted into a redemptive project. Not warthogs or meerkats, but fishermen and tax collectors and prostitutes and Romans and Pharisees and all the rest of them. People knew about a kingdom of domination. They didn't understand a kingdom of mercy and love that serves and welcomes the outcasts. People knew about a kingdom where the king is feasting at the expense of everyone else, but they didn't know about a king that feasts with sinners. <laughs> they couldn't understand a kingdom where it was more blessed to give than it was to receive. They couldn't understand a kingdom where children are put forward as the model to how to enter into it. They couldn't understand a kingdom where a king wasn't anyone special from a privileged family in a noble town who walked around like a big baller shot caller. They couldn't understand a kingdom where the king asked everyone to sell everything just to inherit the treasure of life with him. The kind of kingdom that was so beautiful and resonant with the human soul that you'd do anything once you got a taste of it. Jesus said, as he said often, he described the kingdom in so many images and metaphors. He said, the kingdom of God is like a man who's walking around in a field and all of a sudden he discovers a treasure in that field. And in his joy, he goes back to his home, sells everything he has just to go buy that field and get that treasure. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like that. The kingdom of heaven is like a great feast. The kingdom of heaven is like the seed of a mustard tree that starts small, but it grows into something huge. People understood a kind of kingdom where the king got a crown at the end of the day. But they didn't understand the kind of kingdom where the crown was a crown of thorns. People understood the kind of kingdom where the king got to wear a royal purple robe after he was enthroned. But they didn't understand the kind of kingdom where the king would be getting a robe of mockery on his bloodied and tortured body. People knew about a kingdom where the king could be high and lifted up, but they didn't understand a kingdom when the king said, I'll be high and lifted up, that he was talking about a cross. People expected that when the kingdom of heaven arrived, it would be like a tank rolling into town. But when you read the gospels, it's more like a holy divine EMT ambulance rolling into town. Just go read the gospels. What does Jesus do when he comes? Healing casting out demons, showing mercy over and over and over again. And that's because people fundamentally misunderstood and misunderstand something about Jesus' kingdom. Jesus was after a deeper enemy than the Roman Empire. Jesus was after a more foundational enemy than any empire. He was after the usurped throne of the human heart. And he was after that enemy that defeats even the strongest of men and women, even the most noble or richest and the poorest of the poor, the wise and the foolish, Jesus as a king was after the great enemy called death. And like a king you ain't never seen, Jesus came as the king of kings and the Lord of lords to exhort, to exert his authority over these things. That is the kingdom of God. Do we get it? 
Isn't it sad that Jesus' cosmic gospel of the kingdom of heaven that was a divine protest against the status quo has either been reduced to a way to get out of hell free or a nice, polite, comfortable, ethical, social justice movement with virtue signaling? No. The gospel of Jesus Christ is an invasion into a completely, with a completely otherworldly kingdom invading the present now. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not beam me up to heaven when I die. The gospel of Jesus Christ is heaven come down now among me. So do you see that within Psalm 47 and the scripture as a whole, kingdom is the controlling image or metaphor that's used from the first page to the last. As I just said, the first words that come out of Jesus' mouth when he comes to earth are what? Kingdom. When Jesus sent his first disciples to go preach on his behalf, what did he say to do? Proclaim the kingdom. After his resurrection, what did Jesus do? Acts 1.3, he presented himself alive to them. And after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. The earliest Christian leaders and teachers, what did they teach? The kingdom. The last page of the book of Acts, as uh, the Apostle Paul sits in prison, eventually to, going to his martyrdom, Acts 28, he went about proclaiming the kingdom of God <laughs> and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and hindrance. And what kind of kingdom did Paul proclaim? It was a kind of kingdom that was the realization of Psalm 47, verse 9. The princes of the people gathered together as the God, the people of the God of Abraham. In the kingdom of God, the promise of Abraham finally comes true that all ethnicities and all peoples are granted access to this one dwelling place. And from that day to this one, the Christian faith has produced by far the most multi-ethnic collaborative social movement in the history of the world. I got receipts. You can come see them. And you might ask, as many do, well, if Jesus is on the throne, then why are things the way they are? miserable as ever? Fair question. I think first the response is that things in some ways and in many ways are not the way they were before the Christian movement. Many of the blessings that we enjoy in modern life that our secular society claims as the fruits of education or the fruits of progress or the enlightenment are actually fruits from the tree that is the kingdom of God. The value of the individual with dignity Human rights, the education of women and children, freedom of enslaved people, movements towards social justice, compassionate treatment of the poor, those were not given in the world. Those were not assumptions in the world before the arrival of the kingdom of God. And many of the fruits that we enjoy in our modern world are actually the heritage of those who fought for a world not like their own of those Christians who came before seeking a different kind of way of reality. Secondly, we can say, Jesus never promised that the kingdom was ultimately going to come without trial or horror or waiting or the mixed bag of those who claimed to be in the kingdom but were actually false. But Jesus is patient and wants to restore in us our royal divine image-bearing capacity for dominion in this life. That's why the Christian faith is not a set or true or false, multiple choice, what do you believe? The Christian faith is an invitation to participate in God's redemptive acts on the earth. Does that mean repenting of your own sin? Yes. 
It does. Does that mean finding forgiveness at God's eternal fountain of mercy? It does. Does that mean pursuing a beautiful marriage and partnership together with fidelity and integrity? It does. Does it mean pursuing justice in your city and the value and dignity of everyone in our city and the opportunity of everyone to have a square meal a day and good, clean, warm shelter over their head? Yes, it does. The, the kingdom of God, the gospel, is a cosmic proclamation. And it's, it's a shame that many people in our world have misunderstood the Christian faith to be sequestered into the realm of the spiritual, spiritual or the moral. But no, when you understand that the, the key concept of the Christian faith in all of the Bible is kingdom, you realize that nothing is left untouched. We are working and longing and praying for a day where Revelation 11.5 will come true. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That is the redemptive project that God has brought us into. So what flows out of that, brothers and sisters? Re-enchant your world. Embrace the deep magic that is God's magic in your life. That this story of kings and kingdoms, as sentimental as it may feel to your cynical heart, as unbelievable as it may, you may experience it to be, I proclaim to you that it is the truth. Re-enchant your world and begin to embody the Christian faith redemptively in our imagination. And lastly, as we see in Psalm 47, embody the joy of the kingdom. Because when you recognize that the Lord is on the throne, you recognize that there is the grounding for joy. I recognize that whatever I face on a day when I wake up with all of its headaches, with all of life's tragedies, with all of the miserable realities of being a human being, there is a higher throne. There's a higher plane of being and there's a higher authority over the universe and the way things are. And he will get his way and his way will be beautiful and it will be restorative and it will be healing. So our job as a little outpost of the kingdom in Northeast Washington, D.C., is to embody the joy of the kingdom. And that's why we do, do things like throw parties. <laughs> that's why we serve good food and listen to good music, because people ought to experience Christians to be the one who tell a story of great joy, of great healing, and of great love. And that's why our worship service does not culminate in a true and false quiz. It culminates in a feast and a table. This is the table of the kingdom. This is where we go now. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.